Well, we have been in John chapter 6 for five weeks now. Part of our slow hike through John's gospel. And John 6, um, it kind of can be a book all by itself. Uh, You know, it starts out five weeks ago, if you can remember, with Jesus doing the famous miracle where he took the kids' lunch of bread and fish and then he multiplied it for thousands of people that's how it starts and then there was, it's almost like a whole other chapter he walks on water meets his disciples out on the stormy lake and then after that all of the thousands of people who experienced his multiplying the bread uh, found Jesus at a synagogue and then Jesus preached one of his most famous sermons which is called the bread of life discourse where he talks about He's the bread. And the whole thing was this lesson to teach that he himself is the bread. And we've been going through this for five weeks. And each little section of this chapter is different, but each of them carry one great unifying message. Um, The person who put the chapter divisions in John's Gospel really did this one well because each of these episodes all unify around one singular theme. And that theme is that Jesus is God's person. He came from God to give life to the world. Jesus uses the bread metaphor to explain this. Like somebody would make bread and then give it, and that bread is broken and shared and eaten, and it brings life to us as individuals, but also whoever sits around the table. Jesus is from God to come into our world, to be broken, to be shared, to be eaten to be received, to give life to the world. And that's the theme of every single episode in this chapter. Now, what's interesting about this chapter is that it ends on sort of a downer. Uh, The theme that Jesus is God's person who comes into our world to bring us life, that seems pretty positive. But we see here, when Jesus preached that great bread of life sermon, as beautiful as it is, wonderful as the message is almost all of his disciples left and walked away offended it's in a way some might say this is well if we're measuring Jesus's entrepreneurship his movement starting by worldly standards this is probably the worst sermon he ever preached in fact if Jesus was trying to start a movement he almost ruined it here He got up and he preached a message that offended almost everyone who was following him. He had thousands of people. They were ready to crown him king just before this. And he preaches this sermon about being the bread of life and almost everybody walks away. If Jesus was a pastor during the church growth movement in the 90s or if Jesus was trying to start a company or start a revolution, this would be the turning point when everybody said, remember that day when he preached that one sermon? And everybody left. So all these people leave. They're offended by Jesus. And we focused on this last week. What we learned is that, as sad as it is, it's understandable that people would be offended by Jesus. Jesus made radical claims about himself. It's a huge claim to claim that you are God's person and that you must be received if people are going to receive the life of God to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's pretty offensive. So it's understandable. 
We also learn that it's natural. It was totally natural for people when they heard what he really believed about himself to walk away. And we learned from Jesus' own teaching that in our flesh, in our natural ability, uh, because we're sinners, we actually can't receive and believe his message. It takes God working in our life, opening our mind, opening our hearts, to not just see him for who he is, but to see him as something good for us and to receive him. And we focused on that, and we focused on how that's our hope, is that God is working in the world to help us see Jesus and receive Jesus. In fact, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to open our ears and open our minds so that even though we're offended by him, we can, like bread, receive him. Now, that's as far as we've gotten in the whole chapter. And today I just want to look at the very last piece, which is the, uh, the disciples have remained. It talks about the 12 here. That's the famous 12 that turned into the 12 apostles. And 11 of them remained. We see at the very end, John was very careful to make sure that we knew that there was that one guy, Judas, who didn't make it, but he was still in the group. And we kind of focused on that, talked about that last week. But today I want to focus on these 11 people, and there's probably more. Jesus had other disciples, um, disciples like Mary Magdalene or like Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha, Lazarus. They're not mentioned here, so maybe they were in the group, maybe not, we don't know. But we do know that 11 people said, we're staying. What I want to focus on today is, what is it about those 11 people? that caused them to stay. What was happening in their heart? Surely God was working because that's what it takes for us to stick with Jesus is God working in our heart to do that, to create those desires. But what did their faith in this moment look like? The reason I want to focus on that is because here in this story, at the very end, when Jesus says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter speaks for the group. What we see there is an articulation of the real deal, true, authentic faith in Christ. And the weakness of Peter's confession of faith, the the weakness of the moment, it actually helps us to see their faith in its most authentic form. John's gospel is filled with pictures of people who had strong, confident faith. Think about at the beginning, John the Baptist. He's like out in the desert. His whole life is dedicated to preparing the way for Jesus. You might think about the one time when, the, when Andrew, the disciple, goes and he gets his brother and his friends and brings people to Jesus and says, I found the Messiah. We might think about the, the woman at the well in Samaria, how she went and how she believed in Jesus and she told her whole town who Jesus was. So all these pictures of strong, confident faith in John's gospel. But here we see a picture of faith that's real, but that's not strong and that's not confident. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Basically, Peter is saying, Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Basically, Peter is saying, uh, well, we would, but we don't really know where else to go. We haven't received a better offer yet. That's not really a strong articulation of faith. But 
Peter's weakness, the weakness of the moment, actually allows us to see faith in its pure form. Authentic faith. Peter, who speaks this confession of faith on behalf of the eleven, he's so weak. His faith is so weak. This is, this is this might be a little gross, but I don't mean it to me. But his faith is so weak and anemic that we can see its bones. We can see the structure. The building is so dilapidated that we can see the foundation and the studs. So the question today is, as we look at this text, what what is the authentic faith, the true belief that is something that God makes in our heart, something that the Spirit enables in our heart in this moment? Here's why this is important. If you're like me, uh, I have wondered many times in my life, do I really believe this stuff? Do I really want to be a Christian? Uh, life is hard enough. Christian life can be really hard. Uh, the, the church is not always beautiful. Sometimes it hurts people. I've been hurt by the church. I struggle with sin. Uh, I'm not exactly living a victorious, glorious life where I just overcome all hardships. Uh, and I feel that great blessing from on high. Life is hard. And I've wondered, is this real? Is my faith real? Is what we're doing as a church real? And if we can look in this story at the authentic real faith the thing that God creates in our hearts that stands when everybody walks away that stands even though we're offended that stands even though we don't understand what Jesus is doing and what he's talking about if we can wrap our minds around what that is then we can see well do I have that does my life show evidence of that does our church show evidence of that so that's what we're looking for in this passage. Um, that's the question. What is authentic, real deal, true belief, true faith? Now, I found three things here. Uh, I usually look for three things, and it's kind of funny because every it's a sermon, so there's three points. But I really do, if we look at Peter's confession, I really think, uh, not just for the sake of sermons which have three points, but I really think we do see three uh, marks of authentic faith. We can think of it as three legs of a stool. With these three things, if you see these three things, there's real faith there. There's real Christianity there. God's actually working in, their, in that person's life. You take one of these things away, uh, maybe it's faith in process, but it's not really standing. So three legs to the stool of real deal faith that we see here in Peter's confession. So, first, let's read Peter's confession again. Jesus says, he turns to the twelve and he says, Do you not want to leave too? Wait, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Now that's a rhetorical question. But Peter, being such a character, decides to answer anyway. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, who through, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Okay, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. First, Jesus says, try to imagine the moment Jesus just preached what we probably would think was the worst sermon ever because almost everybody left. And he looks at us. Try to imagine yourself as one of the twelve. He looks at us. He says, you're going to leave too. And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What is Peter saying? What does his faith look like? Well, first, his faith is relational. That's the first mark of real deal, authentic faith. It's relational. It's personal, interpersonal. Peter first says, Lord, addressing Jesus. Now, I've been a Christian a long time, and pretty much the whole time I've been a Christian, I've called Jesus Lord. You know why? Because we speak English and we live in America, and here in our culture, Lord is just one of the words for God or for Jesus. Now, we need to remember that in this time, Peter's saying that to Jesus. Uh, He's not a 21st century American just saying Lord because it's a general term for Jesus. No, he's saying something. Lord means master. Peter is in... It's, it, it matters that John points out that this is the 12 with a capital T. These 12 people were not just Jesus' disciples. Jesus had a big group of disciples. These were 12 guys that Jesus had specifically picked out to be his rabbinical students. Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis at this time would, have, would take on students in an official capacity. Sometimes lots of people would follow a rabbi, but a rabbi would pick out a certain number of official, enrolled, apprentice-like students. Peter says, Lord, it's like he's saying, well, he is saying, master, teacher. Peter appeals right as he speaks or makes reference to his official relationship with Jesus. They are in a master-student relationship. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For Peter, this whole thing about people being offended and walking away, it's not not so much about the content of uh, what offends him or has offended the group. It's about the person. When everybody, and it seems like everybody, walks away because Jesus' message had offended them, Peter reaches out to Jesus' person. Lord, to whom shall we go? If we leave you, then that leaves this empty space in our life. We're students without a master. And to fill that void, we have to go find another teacher. But we haven't found another teacher who's like you. Are you guys going to leave too? Peter says, Lord, we have this thing. We know you. We've committed to you. If we leave you, we would need another you. And we can't find one. It's personal. Do you see it? Why does that matter? Uh, Well, it's easy to think of the Christian faith. It's easy to think of what we're doing here 
primarily as uh, maybe a set of doctrines that we need to subscribe to, or maybe as a movement that we're part of, or something like that. And while doctrine is very important, and why coming together in a community each week and being a part of something is important, neither one of these things exists at the very foundation of true faith. The very foundation of true faith is relational, it's personal, it's about being connected to Jesus. Now, you can be in relationship with Jesus, but not be excited about everything that he teaches. In fact, that's Peter here. That's the disciples here. You can be in relationship with Jesus, but not understand everything that he teaches. That's the disciples here. You can be in relationship with Jesus, but be offended by him. That's what's going on here. You can be in relationship with Jesus and have doubts. And that's what's going on here. Do you see why this is so important? I struggle with doubts. I struggle with questions. I struggle with getting frustrated. Sometimes I don't like what Jesus teaches. To be honest, there's times in my life I don't like him. But I'm in relationship with him. We're in a master-student relationship. And if you're a Christian, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that relationship becomes, is foundational to true faith. It's relational. Uh, think about our, your friendships, or maybe uh, partnerships with people, or if you're married, marriages. We don't always understand each other. We don't always like each other. If you're connected to someone relationally, that's different. That's a different kind of thing. So, what does real, authentic, true belief, real Christianity look like? First, it's relational. It is. Maybe you've heard being a Christian is having a personal relationship with Jesus. That's true. Maybe you've heard becoming a Christian is inviting Jesus into your life, into your heart. That's true. It's relational. Here's the next thing. It's eternal. It's eternal. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's focus here, as he speaks for the 11, so the focus of the 11 here, is, is not on the here and now. It's not on their immediate situation. Their immediate situation stinks. Everybody left, or almost everybody. But that's not their focus. Their focus is on this eternal thing. Jesus speaks, and his words have, his words are, his words express, his words carry an eternal quality. There's eternal life in what he's teaching, in what he does. Now, there's more in this text that kind of helps us understand what, what Peter means when he says to Jesus that his words, he has the words of eternal life. And I want to show you some of these things. Look at verse 54. Jesus is speaking and he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. 
For my flesh is real food, and my bread is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And it says he said this while he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and of life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which one of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Okay. Now, Jesus had just said a bunch of stuff about eternal life. He says that eating his flesh and drinking his blood, receiving him, that's a metaphor, by the way, for receiving him in an intimate way, in a personal way. Jesus said that this is the difference between eternal life. Essentially, Jesus is saying, this is where eternal life is, in eating and drinking from me. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. There's intimacy there. Then Jesus says that it's the Father who sent him, and he lives because of the Father. The life that Jesus has, the eternal life he has as the God human comes from the Father. There's this thing in between him and the Father. And then he says, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. So Jesus, as the God human, has this thing with the Father. His eternal divine life comes from the Father. But anyone who eats and drinks Jesus, who receives Jesus, who has this personal thing, they have life because of Jesus. So there's, think about like, here's the Father, here's Jesus, here people are hearing his words, and to receive him is to tap into this life source. Maybe we can say uh, very loosely or broadly, to tap into this uh, relational energy, to tap into this eternal substance that exists between him and the Father. And then he goes on to say that whoever feeds on the bread, whoever feeds on him, will live forever. Well, who lives forever? God does. Again, he says, look, you eat me, you drink me, you feed on me, you, we have this intimate thing. You are participating in God life. And then he says um, that the Spirit is the one who gives life. And his words are filled with the Spirit and life. Now, Father and the Son. God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father and the Son for all eternity, even before Jesus' birth, all eternity and for all eternity, forward and backwards, the Father and the Son have lived in perfect unity, perfect harmony, and perfect love. What was God doing before he created the world? He loved. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. John's Gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Perfect unity in the Father-Son relationship. 
Well, this relationship has to exist in a context where in eternity past did the Father love the Son and the Son love the Father? Where in eternity past did the Son receive life from the Father? In what context? Even before time and space? Well, the context was in God. The context was the Holy Spirit. So if you think about God as Trinity, Father and Son perfectly unified in the context of the Holy Spirit. This is why St. Augustine said that the Holy Spirit is the love that exists between the Father and the Son. What Jesus is saying here is, hey guys, if you're connected to me relationally, then you are connected to the eternal life of God in the Spirit. You have the thing the Father and Son have. You're participating in that circle. My words bring the Spirit to you. It's like Jesus is speaking when people receive. It's like the Holy Spirit that, that surrounds and encompasses the Father and the Son's love reaches out and brings you in. Peter, later in his epistle, calls this partaking in the divine nature. Theologically, in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, this is referred to as union with Christ or participation in the Godhead. It doesn't mean that we become gods, but it does mean that we are filled with God and brought into God's inner life. So here's the point. God, the fullness of God, is in Jesus. And Jesus is the fullness of humanity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we human beings can participate in the life of God and be filled with God. Do you see it? Jesus, come, Jesus is filled with God and comes to us so that we can be filled with God. So real faith, authentic faith, it's relational. And because it's relationship with Jesus, the God human, it's eternal. And we talked about in John's gospel, and he uses the word eternal, eternal life. That's less about a timeline that never ends and more about the fullness, eternal nature of God. That's why in prologue it says, about Jesus in John 1.16. Out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. So, we have people who've been offended. We have people with doubts. We have people who's, who are not strong in their discipleship. But they are connected to Jesus personally. Which means that the fullness of God is part of their life. That's real faith. So we ask ourselves, is that me? Am I filled with God? That can be hard to conceive of. We're talking about something that is fairly abstract in our world. But when we come here each week and we talk about the bread and the wine, these things that come out of Jesus' teaching that he's the bread of life, we talk about how going to this table we pick up physical things, but in the spiritual world we're actually participating in a spiritual thing. That we're actually receiving Christ spiritually at this table. When we come together as a community, 
on the Lord's Day to worship. We're not just coming together as friends or as neighbors or as acquaintances. Something happens in this space. The Spirit fills this space. When we read the Bible, we're not just reading words on a page. We're reading the inspired word, written word of God. So the things that we do as Christians together carry this eternal quality. And having real faith, authentic faith, means that when we participate in these things, participating in this bigger reality. So it's personal and it's eternal. Here's the last thing. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's faith in this moment, in his weak moment, where we, all we can see is the real deal faith, doesn't just exist in his heart. It doesn't just exist in his brain. It comes out of his mouth in confession. True faith is relational, it's eternal, and it's confessional. That's the third thing. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter confesses. He speaks his faith. The thing that's happening in here and the thing that's happening here comes out of his mouth. This reminds me of in Romans, Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In that verse, the Apostle Paul teaches us that real faith, saving faith, isn't just personal. It isn't just private. It's not just hidden away. It comes out of our mouths. We confess it. We speak it. It becomes public. We show it. And if you have authentic, real deal faith, you won't be able to hide it in your heart. It comes out through your words. This is why practicing confessing our faith is so important. This is why each week we say the creed. One of the earliest creeds in Christian history is the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my master. It's a way of saying, I've signed up for his school. So that's why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you say the creed and you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. Paul also says in Colossians, he says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. He's saying, let that belief, let that confession shape the way you live. Confessing our faith is important. In fact, it's part of real faith. This also means that real, authentic, true Christian faith doesn't just exist in spirit land. It exists in concrete reality. It's not just an ethereal thing. It becomes a physical thing. We speak it with our words. We speak it with our actions. That's why we come together this way to worship. So, in this weak moment, when by... Human standards, Jesus' whole thing is falling apart because he preached what many would say is a terrible sermon and most of the people walk away. But in that sermon, he makes the claim that it's actually God that has to do the thing in your heart. 
Well, when God does the thing in your heart and creates the real deal, real Christian spirituality, what does it look like? Well, it's relational, it's eternal, and it's confessional. That's what it looks like. So is that what you're doing in your life? Is that what your relationship with God is like? Does it have these three marks? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? In Him, are you experiencing this thing that's bigger than you and your ideas? And have you made a confession of faith? You talk about it. That's what we want to do as a church. But here's the best thing about it. And this is where it all comes together. You guys ever played on a terribly boring road trip? Or maybe with a little kid, you ever play the game I Spy? I Spy? Okay, everybody's nodding. The way you play the game is one person finds something in the room and describes it, and the other people try to guess it. So if I were to say, uh, you know, I'm, I spy something that's brown, that's made of wood and metal, that's fat on one end and seating on the other end, and the music comes out of, what am, what am I talking about? A guitar. This guitar, right? Okay, I spy. If we were to say, I spy something that is uh, confessional, I spy something that is uh, eternal, and I spy something that is personal. What are we talking about? Hmm. We could be talking about faith. We just talked a lot about that. Anything else? Does that describe anything else? Does that describe anyone else? Confessional. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Eternal. Out of His fullness we have received grace upon grace. Personal. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, full of grace and truth. Confessional. Word. Eternal. The life of God and personal. The word and life of God coming to us. What is it? Who is it? It's Jesus. Here's the point. Authentic faith looks like the one that, that faith is in. It looks like Jesus. When we have real deal faith that God makes in our heart, it's not about us. And it's not about us becoming the best version of ourselves. It's about us growing and growing and growing into the image of Jesus. And here we see Peter and the Twelve choosing Jesus. Choosing to be taught by him, led by him, over themselves. And in the end, the beautiful thing about it is we see that it's not the strength of your faith it's not the strength of your good works. It's not the strength of your confidence that matters. It's the strength of the one in whom your faith rests that matters. What is real deal, authentic spirituality? Well, it's Jesus himself. That's what it is. So the question then that starts with, do I have the real thing, ends with, do I have him? And the great, wonderful good news about this is that he's freely offered in the gospel. Let's pray.